Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. I didn't know anything about shooting baby syndrome at the time. Um, everything that I learned about it, I learned basically from the prosecutors and the doctors during trial. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Being a parent, especially a parent to a newborn baby, can test us in the most surprising ways. Sometimes, oftentimes, newborns cry and you don't know why. It can be frustrating. They sneeze or they cough and you worry it's something worse. It can be scary. But who knows what goes on behind closed doors? This week at Life of the Law, we're going to tell you a story about a young woman, her family, her community, and her baby. Shaken baby syndrome is complicated. It's sent caretakers, mothers, fathers, babysitters, and nannies to prison, some who later had the convictions overturned. Our story was reported by Adele Humbert and Taylor Mullaney with the Medill Justice Project, an award-winning National Investigative Journalism Center based at Northwestern University. And now our story, Shaken. They call it Babyland. Dozens of stillborn infants and children who lived only a few weeks are buried here at Floral Lawn Memorial Gardens in Battle Creek, Michigan, just past sprawling cornfields. Small tombstones dot the green grass, and artificial flowers are planted by the graves. The space between each bouquet is so small, you can imagine the tiny caskets beneath the surface. On one headstone rests a snow globe, a candle, and a collection of angels. On another, there's a Pez dispenser. Two helium balloons are floating above a grave. One of the stone slabs is for Alicia Duff. Our sweetest baby girl, Alicia L. Duff, born July 29th of 2001 to October 20th of 2001. And she was a little angel. It just wasn't her time. Teresa Miller, Alicia's 54-year-old grandmother, stands stoically in the cemetery. Her blonde bangs hang unevenly, and car oil stains her hands. Teresa tries to hold back tears while she is facing her granddaughter's tombstone. So it's a little heart-shaped plaque with a vase sticking in there so you can put fresh flowers in it. It's got a little shepherd girl on it with two little lambs. On Friday, October 26, 2001, Alicia was buried here less than a week after she died. She was one day shy of 12 weeks old. 15 years later, Teresa tries to imagine a different reality to forget the pain. They're on vacation. To me, if I keep telling myself they're on vacation, I'll eventually see them again. It's the first time in eight years she's been back to the cemetery. It still hurts. It still hurts, a reminder of what's lost, and it's hard to deal with it. According to her autopsy, Alicia died as a result of brain trauma from shaken baby syndrome. Her mother, Tanya Miller, was 18 when her daughter died. 
Tanya was accused of violently shaking Alicia and convicted of murder in 2003. She was sentenced to 20 to 30 years in prison. Tanya, now 33 years old, is incarcerated at Women's Huron Valley Correctional Facility in Ypsilanti, Michigan. From the prison, she recalls the first time police officers arrested her, just after Alicia's death. The very first time I was arrested was two days after she had passed away. They showed up to the house and said that they had a warrant for my arrest. Officers let Tanya go. But six months later, she was arrested again and charged with second-degree murder. Speaking for the Battle Creek Police, Detective Sergeant Troy Gilliland says the department has no comment on the case. Thirteen years later, questions remain. Questions about what happened in Alicia's brief life and questions about the cause of her death. It's the year 2000 in Battle Creek, a city of about 50,000 known for its breakfast cereal factories. Tanya is 17. She lives with her mother, Teresa. Tanya is much like other teenagers. She goes shopping at the mall with her friends, plays soccer and volleyball. But she has a one-year-old daughter and four siblings to help take care of while her mother works on an assembly line. And Tanya is pregnant again. She's unemployed, and there's not a lot of money to go around. An 11th grader, she goes to an alternative school where classes are more accommodating for pregnant students. At home today, Teresa and her youngest daughter, Nicole, now 22 years old, are going through old photos and Tanya's school diplomas and awards. Tanya is 11 years older than Nicole, and by all accounts, she took care of her little sister when Teresa was too busy at work. I remember that, and Tanya take me to school with her when she went to the adult education to get her diploma. She used to take me, because uh, I didn't like to be at home. I didn't like my babysitter. I would rather be with my sister. The glue of the family. That's how Nicole describes Tanya before all of the troubles and now. Tanya's closest friends were like family to her. Whitney Wessner was one of them. She's kept notes Tanya wrote her. Says to Whitney, hope we stay friends forever. We know a lot about each other, and you're a good friend. Love you like a little sis, Tanya Miller. Tanya and Whitney had a ritual when they were kids. They would exchange school pictures and write notes on the back of them. Whitney lived next door to Tanya, and their family shared a driveway. Whitney was 12 years old when Tanya was pregnant with Alicia. I thought it was stressful. Tanya was pretty much the mother of all her siblings. They all needed her. In the winter of 2000, in the early stages of her first trimester, Tanya was already bracing for a difficult pregnancy. She said doctors were worried she might miscarry after she experienced complications while carrying her first child. Tanya was about two months pregnant when she and a friend were in a car that was hit pulling out of a parking spot. Tanya didn't think it was serious. She casually brought it up at her next doctor's appointment and did not come up at trial. About six months later, Tanya got into another accident. Whitney and Curtis, Tanya's younger brother, then 10 years old, remember what happened. The neighbor kids would come over and we'd be on top of the garage. We were playing in the fort. Curtis and I would jump off on them. And then Whitney bloated herself mayor and it upset the other kids and we got into an argument about it. I remember shoving. <laughs> That's all I remember. 
Tiny had to come out. I think she was pregnant. Oh, she had a pretty big belly, I can tell you that. We were all fighting and hitting each other with sticks, and she, I think she even got hit. Tanya said she grabbed Curtis and held him back, but he elbowed her in the belly while he was struggling to break free. Tanya, then late in her pregnancy, brushed it off and didn't see a doctor about it. The incident was not mentioned at trial. Whitney is 28 now. In her living room, a photo album is open on the coffee table. For years, she took photos with disposable cameras of Tanya and her daughters. This is the first time in probably eight or nine years that I've opened it. I kind of just tucked it in my room. I feel sick to my stomach right now. In one picture, Tanya's older daughter is singing along with a karaoke machine. When Tanya was sent to prison, her three-year-old was placed in foster care. On the back of the most important pictures, Whitney wrote notes. Yeah, there you go. Lisa Linda, four days old, six pounds, five ounces, 20 inches, born on July 29th. In this picture, Alicia looks tiny and sleepy. She is wearing a white onesie. Tanya's holding her. The photo is off-center. Tanya is gazing at her baby. She has long, dark hair, chipped fingernail polish, and teenage acne. Now, from prison, Tanya remembers her first impressions of her daughter. She's so tiny. <laughs> she was very quiet. She hardly ever cried at all. Um, she was a real happy baby. After Alicia's birth, Tanya and her boyfriend, Alan, start a life with their new baby at Alan's parents' house, just a block away from Tanya's mother's home in Battle Creek. They live in an area called Post Edition, where trees line the streets and modest homes boast front yards. Tanya says her boyfriend was a proud dad. Well, he immediately wanted to hold her. He did not want anybody else to hold her. He was just a doting father. Several weeks after Alicia's birth, she begins to behave strangely. Probably about five or six weeks after she was born, things just started looking different. She wasn't as responsive as she had been previously. Um, she was just pretty sick a lot. At about that time, Tanya remembers a moment when she realized something was wrong with her baby. But I remember the incident, um, just holding her and then her basically going lethargic. And it scared me. I um, immediately contacted the pediatrician and his reaction was just that she was upset and learned how to hold her breath. Pediatric records obtained by the Medill Justice Project show doctors noted some of Tanya's concerns about Alicia's health and offered treatment. But the hospital system where doctors worked declined to comment, saying it is not its, quote, standard practice to discuss past or present litigation, unquote. Tanya's friend, Carla Edwards, remembers accompanying her one time when she took Alicia to the doctor. She begged for a heart monitor, and the doctor just kept telling her there's nothing wrong with her. Being young, Tanya says she doesn't know how much to push back. Besides, the doctors are the experts, so she trusts them. Tanya wanted a heart monitor for Alicia because she was concerned that her daughter had a heart condition. As noted in the appellate court decision upholding her conviction, Tanya's attorney at trial, quote, presented evidence that Alicia had stopped breathing on several prior occasions and that her pediatrician denied defendants' requests 
to place Alicia on a heart monitor, unquote. Alicia, just weeks old, has difficulty breathing. She doesn't eat much, and she is sick often. Tanya says Alicia has what appear to her as seizures, which become more and more frequent, and her responsiveness slows. Darla Quartz, Alan's grandmother, says Alicia's, quote, eyes looked vacant, unquote. She remembers that from only one visit with her. At trial, Darla says she was thinking about what kind of caregiver Tanya was, not how healthy Alicia was. As a result, Darla didn't bring up on the stand how Alicia seemed lethargic, but she mentioned it to her husband after the trial. Tanya's closest friends and family members have witnessed Alicia's health issues themselves, and Tanya immediately shares her concerns about Alicia with her grandmother, Irma Hoskin. Every time Tanya came to my trailer, she says, Grandma, something's wrong with my baby. She cannot keep down her formula. She was very concerned about the health of the baby. Tanya spent a lot of time at her grandmother's, and Irma recalls Alicia's feeding issues. I seen the baby crying when she came in. Uh, she tried feeding the baby, and when the baby took a little of the milk, she just brought everything right back up. She just couldn't keep nothing on her stomach. Irma's concerns were not voiced at trial because she didn't testify. Tanya recalls another incident that wasn't mentioned in court. Alan is holding Alicia in trips. I distinctly remember Alan carrying Alicia and her head hitting the door frame. Alan did not respond to several requests for comment. Alicia had no bruise, no bump, so Tanya didn't think it was important. It didn't seem hard, but it was enough to make her cry. But uh, she didn't cry for very long, and so we didn't think anything of it. It is just before Labor Day in 2001. Summer is winding down, and the neighbors are having a block party before school starts. Teresa, Alicia's grandmother, and her friend Violet Jean Williams, whom the kids called Aunt Jean, recall Alicia there, sitting in a car seat on the ground. Dressed real cute in her little outfit, little headband, and she looked like a little doll. And at the party, she was laying there sleeping. There was people around her. The kids were playing in the street. They was riding their bikes, throwing water balloons, chalk writing on the streets. All of a sudden, one of the water balloons hits the ground next to Alicia. When the balloon came and burst right there at her, the water splashed and she woke up. She just arched back like this, and her eyes went in the back of her head. I mean, she was arched, the, as much as she could possibly be arched in a seat. And then her whole body just went to shaking like a leaf. You know how you get nervous? This baby body was doing that, and her head was going side to side real fast. And I didn't know what to do. Teresa finds ice and uses it to massage Alicia to calm her. Alicia's episode at the block party was not mentioned at trial. Tanya says she does not remember the incident. One night around that same time, Tanya and her friend Carla are at Carla's parents in Ceresco, Michigan, a small rural village eight miles southeast of Battle Creek. Alicia is lying on the sofa in the living room between Carla and Tanya. 
I do remember at my parents, the baby had stopped breathing. I didn't know what to do, so I yelled for my dad, and he blew in her face. She started breathing again. Carla's mother, Anna, sits on a swing in her yard and recalls that night in her living room. All I remember is him blowing in her face, and then she started breathing again and stopped, and that's when we told Tanya, hey, you need to take the baby back to the doctor. There's something going on with the baby, you know? By October of 2001, Alicia's episodes and breathing issues are becoming more and more frequent. Joyce, Whitney's mother, recalls one of the last times she saw Alicia. It was a few weeks before she died. Her daughter, Whitney, is holding the baby. She's rocking the baby, the baby's awake. We're talking to the baby, and then all of a sudden her eyes roll back in the head and she's gasping. Just kind of... <gasps> Joyce used to operate a daycare out of her home with kids mostly under five years old. She got worried Alicia was having a seizure. She took the baby from Whitney and immediately talked to Tanya about her concerns. I mean, she could tell she wasn't a healthy baby. I mean, she wasn't happy. She wasn't healthy. I told Tanya, something's not right. At trial, Joyce briefly mentioned she wasn't sure whether Alicia had stopped breathing, but she witnessed the child rolling her eyes in the back of her head and giving a blank stare. Joyce did not mention in court specifics of that afternoon at Tanya's house. Another incident was not mentioned in court. When Alicia was about 10 weeks old, Whitney, Tanya's friend, says she saw the child fall through the grasp of her father's hands. I know like a week before she died, I saw him drop her in the bassinet. Whitney says Alicia was crying when she fell about two or three feet. Whitney, then 12 years old, is scared and runs home. She tells her mother what happened. She hit her head on the mattress of the bassinet, but still, I mean, and that never got brought up. Alan did not respond to several requests for comment about this episode. Whitney spends a lot of time with Tanya at Alan's house. She plays with the girls and watches them while Tanya showers. She says Alicia was different from her two-year-old sister. Daydreaming. That's the expression she used to describe her. I feel like she always had a blank stare. Always. I was always trying to get her attention. Like, Alicia. She's just all over the place. Go get your books. Curtis, Tanya's youngest brother, is now 26. At his Battle Creek house, his two-year-old daughter, Angelica, is watching morning cartoons by his side in the living room. He is reminded of another accident that occurred just before Alicia's death, 15 years ago, another episode not mentioned in court. Curtis was at Alan's parents' house to take care of the girls. He was changing Alicia's diaper. I was on my knees. The play pack was off to the right side of me, just behind me. Diaper bag was in front of it. Alicia was on the couch. Went over to the diaper bag. She had a spill, threw herself back, and went off the couch. And she didn't cry, so didn't think much of it. He was only 11 when Alicia passed away, but he has not forgotten her reactions. Her spill was more like seizures, I would say. They would just come and go, and she would just throw herself back and start having troubles breathing, and she was making noises trying to breathe. Um... Kind of like if you just got done jogging and you have heavy breath, it's more or less what it was like. 
I mean, back in my mind, I knew that something wasn't right, but I wasn't a child expert. It's about eight o'clock in the morning on October 19th, 2001. And this is what Tanya says happens, according to records. She is alone with her two daughters. Alan has gone fishing and his parents are at work. The girls have just awoken. The oldest is watching her favorite show, Blue's Clues. Tanya places Alicia in a swing for a few minutes so she can use the bathroom, but she keeps an eye on the girls. She suddenly sees her two-year-old shaking Alicia's swing pretty hard, and she yells at her to stop. She says it could hurt Alicia. Both girls begin to cry. Tanya calms them down, and they start to play again. A few minutes later, Alicia gets cranky, and Tanya figures she's hungry. She sits down and starts to feed her. That's when Alicia starts gasping for air. One of her eyes goes off to the side, and she arches herself backwards. Tanya calls 911. Her mother, Teresa, is just back from work, and here's what is going on. I did see an ambulance, but I didn't know for what. And she called and she said that Alicia had another seizure. She wasn't breathing. Um, she got scared. Alicia is rushed to the ER. The doctor who treats her says her injuries look like abusive head trauma. Investigators from Children's Protective Services arrive and question Tanya multiple times. They explain shaken baby syndrome to her. Spokesperson Bob Wheaton of the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services says it is not permitted to comment on specific cases under the Michigan Child Protection Law. Teresa recalls Tanya's first reaction. Tanya called me and told me, uh, I can't believe that they're saying I shook her that hard. I did not shake her that hard. And I go, well, I know how you do it because you've done it once just lightly at the house. And she started breathing again. You kind of rocked her a little bit like this. You're holding her head. Her body's in your arms like this. And when you blew in her face, she started responding. I said, so I know that you wouldn't do that. On Saturday night at 727, Alicia is declared dead. When Dr. Brian Hunter conducts the autopsy, he finds brain bleeding, brain swelling, and bleeding within the eyes, the three symptoms frequently associated with shaken baby syndrome. He rules her death a homicide. He did not respond to requests for comment for this story. It's April 2003, about a year and a half after Alicia's death. Tanya is on trial. The prosecutor presents a theory. Tanya Miller shook her infant to death because she was stressed. Headaches, you're stressing out, you're living at the dust house, you have no money, no job, you're not getting along with your boyfriend, you take care of your child 99.9% of the time, and you snapped that particular day. That's what happened, isn't it? I was furious. She was such a happy baby. And for them to make that accusation, not knowing anything about her or my relationship with her, I was furious. 
I really wanted to lash out at them, but I'm not a physically violent person, so I just basically shut down. I've never seen Tanya snap. Never in my life. Never. That girl, I bet you I could go up and smack her, and she wouldn't snap. She wasn't that type of a person. That's Anna Edwards, Carla's mother. She was at the trial, and 13 years later, she is still convinced that Tanya did not snap that day. Joyce Wesner doesn't believe it either, and she says so on the stand. And when I was around the baby, the baby had had um, times where she had not, I don't know if she stopped breathing, but she had rolled her eyes back in the head and kind of got a blank stare like she was going into a seizure or something. At the trial, Tanya stares vacantly. I didn't know anything about shaking baby syndrome at the time. Um, everything that I learned about it, I learned basically from the prosecutors and the doctors during trial. David Gilbert, the Calhoun County prosecuting attorney, says he was not involved in the case, but he reviewed appellate records when reached for comment for this story. Gilbert says that records indicate a disagreement, not about whether there was abuse, but about when abuse was inflicted. Daniel Busher, who prosecuted Tanya's case, did not respond to several requests for comment. Edwin Hettinger, Tanya's trial attorney, says his defense strategy largely focused on the disagreement over when the child's head injury occurred. Hettinger, who continues to believe Tanya is innocent, says he didn't focus much on Alicia's medical history. There could be something maybe further that could have been done, I don't know. Hettinger says he recalls talking to Tanya a bit about Alicia's health. But given the Medill Justice Project's findings 13 years later, he says he may have, quote, just scratched the surface, unquote. Sounds like there would be more that could have been delved into with, with all the family interactions. Joyce's daughter, Whitney, then 14 years old, attends the trial and watches it from the gallery in the courtroom. She's in shock. Looked like she'd like pretty much seen a ghost the entire time. Like she was just empty looking. We were like in the first row, me and Whitney and her mom and you know immediate family. Tanya and I had left the courthouse for a short period of time while the jurors was coming up with a verdict. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, if you've arrived at a verdict for your fourth person. They're reading the verdict and they find her guilty. Guilty, sir. And when they announced that she was guilty, I just, I mean, we, of course, all just started bawling. And it was like somebody had stabbed me in the heart. At Floral Lawn Memorial Gardens, just as the sun starts to set, Teresa is on her knees removing leaves from Alicia's gravestone. Tanya has at least seven years to go in prison. Hopefully, once we can get Tanya back home and start actually healing, then we can start moving on. Until then, we just get by day by day, keep ourselves busy. There is a vase attached to Alicia's stone slab. It's the only empty one in Babyland. I'm gonna get some flowers, because the way it looks, she's a lost child that's been forgotten, and she's never been forgotten. 
This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Shaken, a co-production with the Medill Justice Project, was reported by Adele Umbert and Taylor Mullaney, with production by Adele Umbert and editing by Alec Klein and Amanda Westrick. Our senior producer is Tony Gannon. Our post-production editors are Kirsten Jesuits-Heidel and Rachel Kane. We want to thank Alicia Aslan and Rachel Fobar, Medill Justice Project Associates, and Anthony Setapani, former Medill Justice Project Fellow, for their help with the reporting and production of our story. Our engineers were Adam Yoff at WBEZ in Chicago and Howard Gelman and Danny Bringer at KQED Radio in San Francisco. Music in this episode was from the Audio Network. If you prefer to listen to a French version of this episode, you can find a link on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. We want to thank the Medill Justice Project, an award-winning National Investigative Journalism Center that examines potentially wrongful convictions, probes systemic criminal justice issues, and conducts groundbreaking research for bringing this story to life of the law. You can find out more about the Medill Justice Project on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. If you like stories about the law but have gotten tripped up by the legal system, tune into Life of the Law on iTunes. Take a few minutes to post your review, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Each time we publish a new episode, we send people who have subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law that includes behind-the-scenes notes from our reporters. This week, Adele Lumbert and Taylor Mullaney describe their meetings with Tanya Miller in prison. You can subscribe to our newsletter at lifeofthelaw.org. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate, connecting sophisticated listeners with top publishers and thinkers. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, the Proteus Fund, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation to help pay for the direct costs of producing our episodes. It truly only takes a minute. Next on Life of the Law. The pediatrician came back and he said, oh, his levels are, are high. They're quite high. And I said, well, what does high mean? And he said, well, we like to see it under three. Five is cause for concern. 10 is lead poisoning, and your child has 21. That's next on Life of the Law. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter, and in the spirit of giving, we hope you'll make a gift to Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.